Go ahead and find with me Psalm 32. Psalm 32, I'd like to begin in verse 1. Psalm 32 and verse 1. Psalm 32 and verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. C.S. Lewis, of uh, one of the many famous things that he, uh, he has said, said this on the subject of forgiveness. He said, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. And then to mention the subject at all is to be greeted with howls of anger. Everyone loves the idea of forgiveness, but really what we love is the idea of receiving it. We don't love near as much the idea of giving it. We love the sentiments David expresses in these verses. We love what these verses say about God, that he will forgive truly and deeply. He will no longer count our sins against us in his forgiveness. But there is a hard edge to forgiveness. Again, C.S. Lewis puts his finger on on the sort of hypocrisy of how we find it so easy to ask for it. We find it so easy to receive it. We find it so hard to give it. And yet, Jesus says, implicit in this saying is this hard edge, this difficulty. Jesus says one depends on the other. That giving, giving forgiveness and receiving forgiveness have everything to do with each other. He says in Matthew 6.15, for example, If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I think there's also a hard edge here. And there's an issue in our sentimental idea of forgiveness that's solicited so freely and a a lack of thought as to what forgiveness actually looks like from God's perspective and what it demands of us even as we receive it. I think we often show a lack of understanding about what forgiveness means. So what I want to do this morning is to meditate on what God's forgiveness means. What does it mean and what does it not mean to receive God's forgiveness? I think this will first and foremost help our relationship with God, the God who we constantly solicit forgiveness from, hopefully, And then as we understand what God's forgiveness means, it'll help us when we are emulating God in this way, when we are asked to be forgivers. So just to be very clear, this lesson is for anyone who has ever done anything wrong and for anyone who has ever ever been asked forgiveness for something someone else did wrong. Okay, So if you have ever done wrong or if anyone has ever asked you for forgiveness for something they have done wrong, then this lesson is for you. If you have never done anything wrong, then you may be excused. And by the fact that you are still here, it means you need to hear this. The Bible is where we need to find out from God's perspective what does forgiveness mean, what does it not mean. I want to begin by uh, naming two things that it does not mean. Here's what God's forgiveness does not mean. Number one, when God forgives, it does not mean what we did was okay. It does not mean what we did was okay. We understand this in in terms of human forgiveness. You've been offended, you've been wronged, you've been injured by someone else, and your offender comes to you seeking forgiveness penitently and genuinely. And you hear the apology, you believe it's sincere, you believe in their intention to to not repeat that. But but maybe you're tempted to to withhold forgiveness, withhold uh, accepting the apology, because you're afraid if you forgive them, the offender might think what they did was okay. Or they might think it's not a big deal. Now we understand, just because we offer forgiveness doesn't mean 
we thought it's okay. When thinking of ourselves in the forgiver's shoes, we understand just because we forgive, it doesn't mean we approve of what they did or think lightly of what they did. And there is no hint in Scripture that in the act of forgiving sin, God ever condones the sin He forgives. He forgives it, but He does not condone it. And so for example, in 2 Chronicles 7 and verse 14, He says, My people who are called by My name humble themselves and pray and seek My face and turn from their wicked ways. If they do this, then I will hear from heaven forgive their sin, and heal their land. It's clear God even sets conditions that those who do these things will receive forgiveness for their sin. One of the conditions here uh, of forgiveness was that they turn from their sin. And so if God tells someone to turn from the sin he's forgiving them of, it's obvious he wasn't okay with them doing it. The definition of sin does not change for people who repent and are forgiven of sin. The definition of sin remains the same. The person is forgiven as that person turns from their sin, but being forgiven by God never means that what we did was okay. Or in Isaiah 55 and verse 7, the prophet says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God is not saying wrong behavior is okay. That's what forgiveness means. Not a big deal. When God appeals to sinners to repent, he is plain in requiring the behavior be acknowledged, confessed, and stopped. So when God forgives you, he is not saying, he is never saying that what you did is okay. If you've been lying, God says, forsake lying. I want to forgive you, and I also want you to forsake the sin. And if you've been guilty of sexual immorality in thought or in behavior, God says, stop it. I forgive you, but stop it. If you've been apathetic or complacent toward the Lord's work, God can forgive you of that. But that doesn't mean what you've done is okay. And that doesn't mean you can keep doing it. Which brings us to a second doesn't. When God forgives, it does not mean it's okay to do it again. To put it another way, pardon is not permission. Pardon is not permission. Two different things in the, in the dictionary, two different things in reality. When a state governor issues a pardon to someone who had been convicted of murder, and he issues a pardon, that doesn't mean the person released is legally allowed to murder now. When a husband tells his wife he's sorry for raising his voice at her and she accepts his apology, is she telling her husband it is okay for him to raise his voice again? Is pardon permission? When God forgives, it doesn't mean it's okay for us to go ahead and do that thing now that he's just forgiven us of. I want you to turn with you to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. <clears throat> Romans chapter 6. So, near the end of Romans 5, uh, Paul's argument has really converged on the subject of God's grace. We, know, we need to know that God does not have to forgive anybody. That's why it's called grace. He does not have to forgive anybody. He is under no obligation to save anyone. There is nothing in human behavior that puts God in debt to us as if he owes us anything, compelling him to save us based on our merits. If you read the first three chapters of Romans, you, you will be convinced that that is not the case. We are in God's debt. He is not in our debt. And so Paul's argument here is that salvation is a product of God's grace, God's generosity, God's mercy, not God being in debt to us, not God owing us anything. But as Paul talks about the subject of grace, this astonishing gift, 
in the same breath, he wants to discourage anyone from taking advantage of it, from presuming on that gift, from thinking, you know, because God's so good to forgive us, that means we can just continue in sin. If it's all of grace, if, it's, if salvation is about receiving a gift and not, and not earning a wage, then that means we just don't ever have to worry about anything. And we'll just keep asking for forgiveness because God is so good. That's exactly what Paul does not want us to conclude. Romans 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Again, the more sin I do, the more grace God gets to display. And that just makes God all look all the better because he just has more and more grace. Paul says in verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who are baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that, we, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul says when God, by His grace, forgives us, it doesn't mean it's okay to keep on sinning. Paul says people who have received the forgiveness and grace of God through baptism ought to be so thankful and so assured and so motivated that they don't want to have anything to do with sin. If we hope to partake in the resurrection that our baptism foreshadows when we come up out of the water, we also have to partake in the death that is foreshadowed in our going down into the water, in the death of the old man of sin who was governed by his own lusts. We don't want to have anything to do with that sin we have supposedly died to. And we should want to develop so much discipline in our hearts that everything offensive to God becomes offensive to us. And so when God forgives you, that does not mean what you did was okay, and that does not mean you may continue in your sin, that you've received a license to keep doing that sin. Well, a sermon that just tells you what something does not mean is not a very good sermon. So let's talk about what it does mean. What does God's forgiveness mean? Number one, when God forgives, it means he no longer holds your past sin against you. Go back with me to Psalm 32, the place where we started. Psalm 32. When God forgives, he no longer holds past sin against us. This is Psalm 32 and verse 1. This is a psalm which almost certainly uh, is David reflecting on his sin with Bathsheba. And the, the, uh, what happened from that, if you read the whole psalm, you hear him describe his state of mind, his dark, his dark days. After that, the guilt that he wrestled with. But this is him reflecting on it, reflecting on the goodness of God who has forgiven him after this. And again, Psalm 32 and verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. One of the common images of sin and forgiveness in the Bible is debt. Have you ever forgiven a debt? Someone owes you money. They have an obligation to pay, maybe legally, maybe just sort of morally handshake sort of thing, and yet you decide to release them from that obligation. You have erased. You have forgiven the debt. You choose to regard the money you gave them as a gift and not a loan. Same is true on the other side. 
To, to be forgiven a debt. Someone you owe money to notifies you you are no longer under any obligation to pay. Imagine the gratitude you would feel toward that person. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus tells a parable about forgiveness which trades on this very image of debt. And he says this, he freely forgave them of their debt of the master. In modern terms, the bill stopped. The collection call stopped. Your credit will not be hurt anymore. This is a pretty good way to understand what God does when we righteously solicit his forgiveness. He no longer holds our past sin against us. He forgets it. He erases the debt. It's off the books. The bills and past due notices stop. He will not bring it up again. He will not hold it over our heads if we wrong him again. Forgiveness from God makes it as if it had never happened. There's a story a a friend of Clara Barton told about how they once reminded her of an especially cruel thing that had been done to her years before and reminded her and were wondering what she thought about it. And Miss Barton seemed not to recall it. The friend asked, don't you remember what they did to you? And Miss Barton replied, I distinctly remember forgetting it. I distinctly remember forgetting it. That's something like what God does when he forgives us. This is Psalm 103. Go with me to Psalm 103. I want you to listen closely here to how God's forgiveness is described by this psalmist. Psalm 103 and verse 8. Psalm 103 and verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. This is what God is willing to do for us based on the death of Jesus. When God forgives us, he no longer holds us accountable for the sins we have been forgiven. Jeremiah says this, and and the book of Hebrews repeats it. He says, your sins and your iniquities I will remember no more. He says to his forgiven people, your sins and your iniquities I will remember no more. People remember. We remember. Some of us collect grudges like people collect stamps. We keep fresh the wrongs done to us. We remember acutely what it was people did to us, often so we can have leverage over that person who did that wronging in the future. And if they step over the line again, we can bring their whole record up again. God is not that way, the Bible says. When God forgives, he no longer holds your past sin against us. It also means this. God's forgiveness means that we embrace everything about repentance. When God forgives, it means we embrace everything about repentance. Forgiveness of sin from God is not imposed on people against their will. I've never found it in the Bible where God forgives someone against their will. You don't just walk along the street and feel a jolt and you've been forgiven of your sins. If someone does not want to think about their sin and does not want to admit their sin, if someone does not want to think about God, if someone does not want to solicit his forgiveness, God will not impose on them that forgiveness against their will. God asks asks us to do something to receive the gift. 
And one of those big things in, in Scripture is to repent, to stop the sin, to stop doing the wrong, to start doing the right, to make the commitment to follow through. Repentance always starts with a broken heart of godly sorrow. It then leads to obedience and begins a new way of life. It means we're willing to stand corrected. and We're willing to grow spiritually. As Paul preached in Acts 17, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Forgiveness from God means you're ready to give up all your sin and to take up everything that is meant by the word repent. And one, one of the serious errors of, of modern, modern religion is a basic misconception of conversion. There are some people who believe basically conversion means you take your life wherever it is now, as long as it's pretty respectable. <clears throat> you take your life wherever, wherever it is now, and conversion means you sprinkle a little Jesus on top, and you sprinkle a little church in the middle. You go to church a little more often than you used to, without really a subtraction of sin, without making real life changes, without a change of mind, which is always the beginning of repentance. What conversion has always meant is a belief in Jesus at such, such a depth that you want to repent and you want to be baptized and you want to follow up and you want to submit to the authority of the teachings in the New Testament and you want to emulate Jesus and you want to participate in his church. When God forgives, when forgiveness happens in the book of Acts, real forgiveness, it means that the person who is forgiven embraces everything about the word repentance. And number three, when God forgives, it means we must never forget what it took. This is part of what it means for us. It means we must not forget what it required of God in order to forgive us. This is Ephesians chapter 2. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11. <clears throat> In Ephesians 2 and verse 11, Paul writes, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is the circumcision, which is made in the, in the flesh by hands, remember that you at one time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace. He who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to one spirit in the Father. There's so much to chew on here. I think it's worth saying that really what he's getting at here is the reconciliation that takes place not only between us and God, but the reconciliation which then outgrows into our relationships with one another. Speaking here about Jews and Gentiles being reconciled into one body. That the forgiveness we receive is then acted out in the forgiveness we give toward others. In verse 13, he says this, Now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we have been apart from God, and sin is the thing that took us apart from God. To be brought back, 
we must have some basis on which to claim forgiveness. And that basis is not our achievement. It is not our stellar moral virtue. The the basis is the death, the blood of Jesus. That though you have sinned yourself away from God, you can be brought back into contact with God, into fellowship with God and with his people because of the blood of Christ. Verse 18 again, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Through him here means through Jesus. Through Jesus we have access to God even though we have sinned. The access we once had to God was broken when we sinned. That access is restored when we are forgiven of sin through Christ. And so when the gospel is read and the gospel is preached, what is really happening is God is calling sinners saying, I will forgive you based on the death of Jesus. And what is asked is that the individual steps up, understanding the price that was paid in order for him to be reconciled to God and claims that forgiveness by obeying the gospel, being baptized into Christ. Sin is what led us away from God. The blood of Christ is what paves the way back. It is amazing to think that the all-powerful God has used all of this power on our behalf to make a way to forgive us. It is something I think we cannot fully comprehend, but we must try our hardest. Forgiveness is never something to be taken for granted. We must never say or think, God will forgive me, that's his job. No, it's not. He chose to do this. Jesus chose to die so that we could be reconciled to him and his Father. And when we regard forgiveness lightly, when we think, I can just ask for forgiveness later as I do this wrong thing, what we are really doing is spitting in the face of God who sent his Son to die for our forgiveness. When God forgives, we must never forget what it took for God to forgive. As we end, I, I want to uh, share with you a story I ran across. It's a story of a, of a Spanish father, a father from the country of Spain. He and his son had, uh, had grown apart over the years, uh, a strained relationship that ended when, when his son finally ran away from home and vowed never to want to see his father again. So the father began a long journey in search of his lost rebellious son, and his son's name happened to be Juan. Finally, he concluded Juan was in or near a certain city, And so he bought space in the local paper and he put an ad, put an ad in the paper. Couldn't afford a very big ad, so his ad simply said this. Dear Juan, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon tomorrow. All is forgiven. I love you. And the next day at noon, in front of the newspaper office, there were were 800 men by the name of Juan seeking forgiveness from their father. God is saying to us in Scripture over and over and over again, I want to forgive you. I have done all that I possibly can based on the death of my son. But he also says I need a response. I am seeking you. I have come as far as I possibly can. Will you come and turn and seek me? If you recognize that God is above all and that the Bible is his word and that Jesus is his son and that sin is your problem, you basically know what you need to know to be redeemed by the blood. The New Testament instructs a response. Hearing that message, believing in Christ, repenting of your sins, confessing your faith, being baptized, and living faithfully in His service. God offers forgiveness to you, and He awaits your response. Right now as we stand and sing.